in and focus down on those things that you've called us to, that we would understand your character and your love and your mercy and your grace. God, I pray this morning that we would understand that uh, we are not a people that are waiting to be sent, but Lord, we are by nature, by being followers of Jesus, Lord, a sent people. Lord, I pray that we would realize that uh, Lord, as a sent people, you've called us to be empowered and to be anointed and to, to, to be uh, engaged in what you've called us to. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to renew our minds, that you would continue to, to renovate in that sense our heart, that you would continue to revolutionize our life. In your precious name, amen. Can you just get the uh, sermon slides up, guys? Because we're going to need them this morning pretty bad. If you come with me, I want to catch you up to speak. The Gospel of Luke is written to a guy, this is for those that haven't been around, written primarily and firstly to a guy called Theophilus. And one of the things you have to understand when you read Scripture, and this might sound funny, is Scripture is not actually written to you, even though it's written for you. So that means when you're reading it, you need to understand it in the context, culturally, you need to understand it in its context in terms of language, you need to understand it in its context in terms of the issues it's addressing. The book of Luke opens and he, he starts to note, and this is to give you a bit of background, he starts to note all the times and dates and people, and Luke has this habit of naming a person from a Jewish, a Greek, and a Roman background. He, he names geographical locations, and the reason he is detail-oriented, and he's writing to a guy called Theophilus, who is likely the, the, the funder and the benefactor of the whole book of Luke, because it probably would have taken two years to, to research and write the book of Luke, is verse 4. And verse 4 frames the intent of the whole book of Luke. And verse 4 of chapter 1 says, I'm writing this essentially, verse 4, so that you might be certain of the things you're being taught. I say this time and time again, when you open the pages of Scripture, you can be certain of what is written, of its historicity, of its relevance. You can be certain of the implications of that. You can be certain of Jesus. The, the greatest thing uh, life will do to you, whether it's experientially or life will do to you in terms of people trying to undermine your faith, is go, hey, I don't reckon you can trust that. Don't you know it was written by ancients? Like ancients were somehow like barbarians or something. And I don't know if you've ever turned on the news and wondered where the barbarians are, but our age is full of it. Like we, we have this chrono-bigotry that presumes that because it was 2,000 years ago that somehow they were less intelligent and nothing could be further from the truth. We, like the fact that we've got the Kardashians and all those and like people like look at these people and they're like, I want to be like that fake. And God loves them. But seriously, like we... we I find it amazing when people come around texts like this that took two years to write, that took, in modern terms, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that it's detailed, that it's done according to testimonies and eyewitnesses, that is double-checked, that you've got historical figures that are all put in there so you can confirm this. The readers of this could go to every reference and go, oh, is this true? And they could, no, no, no. But that wasn't the outcome. We get to the beginning of chapter 4 of Luke, and I'll catch this up to where we sort of are. In, in the beginning of chapter 4 in Luke, Jesus is led by the Spirit and in the power of the Spirit into the wilderness. And this is a crucial thing to remember because we need to understand that as Jesus is sent and the model with which Jesus walks is a model which we can aspire to. But here's the scary thing, it means that the, the Spirit of God might lead you into the wilderness. Sometimes we're trying to tell the devil get, to get behind us and it's the Spirit that led us there. 
Now, it's true that the devil's present there, but it was the spirit that led Jesus there. And in, in Hebrew, the, uh, the Jews would call the wilderness, and I've been there in Israel, they would call it Jeshimon, which literally means the devastation. You ever been to a place where it feels like you lost everything? You ever been to a place where you feel like you're alone? You ever been to a place where you feel like the only voice is not exactly a godly one? The Spirit led Jesus there. And here's a scary thing for you and I. The Spirit can sometimes lead us there. But crucially, in verse 1 and verse 14, that frames this whole experience with Jesus, is that it says He went in the power of the Spirit. And in verse 14 it says, And He went in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. See, the reality is you can't walk the Christian life if you're trying to walk it in your own power. If you think you're good enough to do this in your own power and ability, then you're going to find this far too hard. You can't. But we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can walk in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can walk in the purposes of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter what circumstance happens to us. Circumstance does not determine our outlook. The Spirit of God determines it. That's why it didn't matter what was happening to Jesus physically in terms of temptation or emotionally in terms of opportunity to circumvent the Father's plan and take a shortcut to glory. He could take the Word of God and say, here's the deal, the only bread I ultimately need is this thing. The only thing is I need is the Word. The only, only glory I need is the Father's glory. We get to verse 14 and it says this, and keep on coming for a journey with me. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And news about Him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and note this phrase, and everyone praised Him. Have you ever noticed that our actual, our whole society still loves Jesus? A matter of fact, people bring out statistics that go, Australians love Jesus and they hate the church. This is, this is what's going on here. Everybody loves Jesus. But can I tell you, the reason they love Jesus is because they don't know Him. The people that are praising Him right now, in about 10 verses, are going to be throwing Him off a cliff if they can. You know, sometimes we as Christians actually get sucked into this idea, oh no, the, the church sucks. And you know what the church does at times suck, but that's because I'm in it. And it's because you're in it, and sorry, but we're sinners. It, like... Sometimes we're going to make mistakes and sometimes we're going to rub up against each other. And, uh, and do you know what? Most of the time it's actually God being involved in that moment. And it's to teach you forgiveness and it's to teach you to overcome bitterness and it's to teach you to, to learn fortitude and resilience. And guess what? God is in the middle of the conflict usually and so often we're, we're running from it. And God's like, no, 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 just hang out long enough to be shaped and crafted. Our, our society will tell you still that they love Jesus. As a matter of fact, every religious background says they sort of love Jesus. Hindus will go, oh, guru. And I think it's in Buddhism, is it the Bodhisattva or the, the, the truly enlightened ones? I like, like Jesus. But don't get too close to Jesus because Jesus will soon tick you off. And if you've felt offended by Jesus, then you probably are starting to get to know Him. Everybody, it says, praised Him. Because Jesus is always popular uh, until... He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up and read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit 
of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to, uh, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news. And I want you to slow this up for a second because, uh, particularly if you're from Penny charismatic sort of background, we actually confuse anointing and the Spirit of the Lord. Have you ever noticed, just in casual language, people are like, I think, oh man, that guy is so anointed, inverted commas. What we mean by that is he's really good at something. Like, we've got to be pretty self-critical sometimes. We're, we're like, wasn't the worship anointed this morning? No, they, the musos were pretty awesome, maybe. The vibe was cool, and you were engaged emotionally, and that's okay, because God made you emotional. Don't feel guilty for being emotional. Don't feel guilty for being intellectual. Don't feel guilty for being physical. Your body, soul, and spirit, get over it. Like, people, like, they usually opt for one thing. Oh, I think we should be word people, and I harp on this. And do you know what? Yes, we should be word people, but you can't be a word person and not be a spirit person because the word throws us into the deep end with the spirit, and if you believe the word, you're going to desire earnestly spiritual gifts because that's what it says to do. And if you're a spirit person, guess what? You're going to love the word because the, the spirit inspired the word. There's no divide here. From the beginning in Genesis, the word and the spirit go hand in hand. God speaks, and it says, and God's spirit hovered. Don't divide the Spirit and the Word. Don't, don't try to get into some compartmentalized life. Because we are all guilty at some point of living compartmentalized lives where God is over there and we're over there and jobs over there and families over there. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, and slow this down for a second, is upon me. Why? Because quite often we actually want the Spirit of the Lord on me so I can um, get a real buzz. Because it's really cool to get a buzz. Because so I can get tingles or um, so I can, I don't, it depends on your background. Like, and I, I've had incredible uh, experiences with the Holy Spirit that have revolutionized my life, that have had even weird as physical manifestations, not a lot, like in the 90s, like people, uh, there was a whole laughing thing. If you're old enough, you remember the laughing thing. Everyone's laughing and yeah, there was some flesh, but you know what? I've laughed twice in my life when touched by the Holy Spirit. That's probably all I needed in one sense. Some people seem to need a lot more, but I, I, find it, I found it funny, I found it funny that everybody, there was all this criticism of people laughing, but everyone's cool with crying. Yeah. Does anyone like, oh no, if God comes on you, don't be happy. Man, seriously, this is church. You're supposed to be sad. Like, don't laugh. God, like, God wouldn't do that. Like, why would God, I know God make you cry. And I'm all good with crying too, because, you know, I was about 14 years old. I went to a youth camp, and I love camps. I love camps because you, like, get away, and you separate yourself from your everyday life. And uh, I was at this camp, and um, as a 14-year-old, I was already pretty hurt in some regards. Pastor's kid, and if you don't know, uh, the life of pastor's kid, sometimes full of conversations that maybe 13 or 14-year-olds sometimes shouldn't hear. It's a pretty battered lifestyle at times. I, uh, I literally sat there as a 14-year-old, and I'd already put on this, like, I'm a... I'm a I'm a man's man sort of like persona. Played rugby league. I was already playing rep football. And uh, pretty much if you couldn't punch their face in, you weren't a man. Like it was pretty like superficial. I, I went to this uh, youth camp and uh, in the midst of worship, God just touched me and I actually literally started crying. Um, I wasn't the sort of guy that cried much. Um, but not back then. I, I can tell you even now, you could probably break my arm, break my leg and break my jaw and I would refuse to cry. Because, uh, man, but I can also tell you, and you, 
possibly seen it. When it comes to the cross of Christ, man, God breaks me open. I sat there and probably for two hours I cried. Um, I sobbed over brokenness, of hurt, of sin. Um, probably the most repentant moment I've ever walked in. And then I laughed. And I laughed, I swear, for, I don't know how long, but I was there at 12 o'clock and there was one other guy and everyone else had gone to bed. And was it all God? I don't, I don't know, but who cares? God brings joy into a life. Like, is there some flesh? Yes, but it's not normally the person being a little bit weird that might have gone a little bit fleshy. It's a person at the back going, oh, stuff all this, that thinks they're better than all that stuff. Because I've been there, by the way. I'm a natural cynic. I'm a natural skeptic by nature. I'm, a, I'm, a intellectual, like, uh, I'm, I'm more intellectual in my nature, so I look at things and go, oh, that's rubbish. But in doing so, I usually miss out on what God's got for me. Not, well, I'll say this, I think I used to. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord didn't come upon me in that moment and didn't touch me just so I could even be better. Because, do you know what, church is not just a hospital. Because the problem is if church is just a hospital and you hang around, you'll get sick again. Because that's what happens at hospitals. You get golden staff or you get some weird-ass bug, you go in with a cold and, like, die from some, like, just grotty disease, like... You haven't noticed that? Like, I got friends, he broke his leg and then, like, golden staff in it because he was there for too long. And now he, like, for 30 years later, he's still limping. Like, there's that point where you're like, no, 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 no. Don't want to go to hospital, I'll die. Like, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, not just, and can I tell you, not primarily just to heal you, but to, to anoint you. There is a difference. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me. And anointing, literally, you can just use this word, appointing. The anointing would be when they would crack the oil over the, the priest or they would pour the oil over the king and it would say, this person has been set aside for a point. The Spirit of the Lord comes on a person for a point, for a, for a reason, because of a because. Of a because. Now, here's the problem. We often don't. We want this, depending on you. We're okay with that, but we're not sure about this purpose business. Like, don't crowd out my life, God. But it's the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me. So the reason the Spirit of the Lord is on you because is because you've been appointed for a reason. Why? But you have to remember the reason. To proclaim the good news to the poor. To declare. To, to make God unavoidable. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. Just flick up the next verse for a second. And I, I want you to remember, by the way, the big anointed for a second. He has sent me to. Now, I want you to pause. There's what are called two parallel verbs here in Greek. Give you a bit of Greek lesson. The, what this means is you pay attention to the first verb, and the point is, what is the second verb? Because it unpackages the idea of the first. The first is, He has, rather, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Why? Because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news of the, to the poor. That's this essentially, is the overarching statement of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to proclaim the good news to the poor. Then it says, this is the how, the next verb, the next primary or parallel verb. He has sent me. He has anointed me. He has sent me. And here's the reality in your life. If you're waiting to be sent, then you've already missed the call. Because He sent you a long time ago. When you came to Christ, He set you and He sent you on a different uh, course. In John 20, 21, and we, this is why it matters that we listen to how Jesus was sent. Jesus says in John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. 
So if you want to know what it's like to be sent, if you want to know what you're called to do, then we'll look at how Jesus was sent, what he was sent to do. Because we, as the church, the body of Christ, embody the proclamation of the gospel of the poor. We are the ones that are called to be sent. And note these four things, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the favour of the Lord. Now, Jesus, right in this moment, is initially quoting from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but he does something a little bit unusual. He actually alludes, because if you go back to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, to set the oppressed free is not there. It's actually from Isaiah 58, 6. Jesus opens this scroll and before him, he reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and as he's reading, he draws from the rest of Scripture and goes, come on, this is what it's about as well. Because guess who's listening? This is his hometown. This is Nazareth. Nazareth was the lowest of the low. Historians and archaeologists will often tell us at present that it was essentially like a graveyard town. The poor and the nothings came from Nazareth. Have you ever noticed that whatever city you come from or town you come from, you look down on another one? From Sydney, you try to look down on Canberra. If you're Canberra, you look down on Cooma. And this keeps on going, like, because I'm from Cooma. And so, in Canberra, to be quite honest, we try to look down on Canberra as well. But nonetheless, in, in, within the context of Cooma, it's like this tier of, like, we're better than you. You suck more than we suck. Cooma would look at Breadbow. Anyone driven through Breadbow? And we would call it in Breadbow. In Breadbow. If we would look at Berradale and it'd be Boringdale and Jindabyne, it'd be Jindabyle, because we were better than them. Now, keep this in mind, Nazareth doesn't have anyone to look down on. They're the lowest of the low, and they are hearing something that's probably incredibly appealing. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. These are the poorest of the poor in the Jewish context. In terms of economics, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Do you know right in this moment, contextually, when a person could not pay back their debt to the Romans, they would throw them in jail. And here's the problem, when you're so poor, you can never pay it back. So you had two options, stay in jail forever or sell yourself as a prisoner or sell someone in your family as a slave until it was paid back. The, the Nazare, Nazarenes, rather, are listening to this and this is speaking right to them. And right now, they love Jesus. Jesus is amazing. And recovery of sight to the blind. Have you ever been to a third world nation and you get a real recognition of how prevalent brokenness is? I think in Australia, we often don't notice it as much because one, we put it in a hospital away. Death is in a morgue. Like for many of us, there's probably people here who have never seen a dead body in their life. That's really unusual in the majority world. It's entirely unusual in this moment. Recovery of sight to the blind. And I guarantee there's blind listening to this going, yes, here we go. To set the oppressed free, this is an oppressed people under Roman occupation. Jesus knows what it's like to be part of the oppressed. Israel knows what it's like to be part of the oppressed. And Nazareth is right at the bottom of the heap. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And it's probably been highlighted before, but you note that in Isaiah 61 too, it's not done yet. It actually continues to say, and the day of the vengeance of our Lord. And it's important because, can I tell you, right now is the day of the Lord's favour. The day of vengeance has not come. But it's also important to note that Scripture promises, don't worry, it's coming. The day of judgment's actually coming. But right now, we're in the moment of favour. 
What that means is not that everything in your life is right, but God is drawing you to himself anyway. That God doesn't look at you and go, oh, you're pretty good, Jonathan, I think I love you. No, no, he loves you even though there's sin and even though there's brokenness and he looks at me and he decided to die for me and decided to die for you before we were sinners and whilst we hated him because this is the moment of favor. To proclaim the favor of the Lord is to walk to someone in your life and go, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you believe. God loves you so much and it doesn't matter how much you hate him. God loves you with an intensity that's just incredible. You know, the fact is, God loves Richard Dawkins even though he slanders him. God desires that Richard Dawkins be saved as much as he desires that we come to him. God desires that um, Baghdadi, al-Baghdadi from ISIS comes to Christ. That Could you imagine like al-Baghdadi becoming effectively the next St. Paul? Like the next, because that's what happened. The Apostle Paul is ripping up and destroying Christians and jailing them and killing them. And well, God goes, okay, we're, we're going to show the world how this works. I reckon that's totally God. I've talked about it before, and I've, I might have shown a picture here of Ibrahim, who's one of the guys we work in in eastern Turkey, a Syrian guy, who only 18 months ago was the head of one of the extremist organizations. And, he, and I, it's still one of the weirdest moments in my life where he was because I, I speak okay Turkish, not great Arabic, and he's like, oh, my whole desire in life was to kiss the back of a Christian's neck, and I'm like, that's sort of unusual, like, oh, I don't want a dude to kiss me at all, let alone on the back of my, like, that, but it's just creepy, like, there's moments in your life, you're like, oh, that's weird, and then he finishes it, so my sword could touch that space, and you're like, okay, that's not just creepy, that's, thank you, Jesus, that you know, like, God, God glories, God, God loves making a spectacle of our brokenness, going, yeah, well, don't worry about that, I can fix that. Even if you have to walk with that brokenness for a time, don't worry, eternity is going to deal with this. Our, our hope is anchored in eternity, by the way, not now. But Jesus is not done because these people still love him, and it might sound funny, but until you get to the point where Jesus ticks you off, then you don't know him well enough. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, in our modern context, we tend to, if you visualize this, you're like, you feel like he was, got up, read the Bible, then he gets down and sits down. But that's not actually what's going on. Sitting down, a sitting stance is actually a rabbinical stance for teaching. So Jesus reads the Bible, he reads Isaiah the scroll, and then he sits down. And everybody knows he's about to say something profound, because that was the point. He moments in, he quietens it, and it says this, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, don't interpret this verse as if you've read the rest, because they still love him. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that come from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Now, hold this for a moment because there's no indication that they, don't, they hate him yet. They just love him. They're, they're amazed that he's Joseph's son, but in, um, even more, they're amazed that this guy has just said that he's fulfilled the messianic prophecies and he's one of them. This is one of us. And have you ever noticed that when somebody comes from your world and makes it into the big time, you're like, I... I know them. And nearly, we find these weird ways to like pretend we knew them. Like my sister's cousin's mother, she went to school with her. 
Like, I, one of my greatest claims to fame is that I knocked out an NRL player once in a game of footy. It was in grade 12, and there was actually three of us in the game, uh, in, the, in the tackle. And it wasn't just an NRL player, it was Brett White. He played for the, the, the New South Wales Blues at one point, cleaned him up. It's like, he's from our town, and not only is he from our town, cleaned him up, hospital. <laughs> yes. And still, I still feel a little bit of pride in it. I never played the NRL, it wasn't good enough. I didn't have that call anyway, but woo, this, is, this moment is still that moment going, here's one of us. This is Joseph's son. If a nobody like Joseph can become the Messiah, this is an affirmation to us. Nazareth is right now feeling affirmed. But I promise to you, Jesus is not done yet. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this prophet to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what, you have heard, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, keep the thread, uh, the tense and the moment in line. They're going, we've heard of everything that you've done elsewhere. Now, do it here. We are your people. This is your hometown. Come on, physician, work in your hometown like you've worked out elsewhere. Do those awesome things here. Nearly a sense of you owe us because we're part of you. And Jesus confronts this in a way that it, often if you read this quickly, you'll find very confusing. What you don't find is confusing is that after Jesus says these next couple of verses, they want to kill him. This is a pretty big flip, like, this is a big deal. They love him! Now we're going to throw you off a cliff, like, indecisive much. Hear what he says. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And often we quote that without considering the verses after. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Isaiah was not sent to any of them. Where were the widows? Israel. Who did Elijah go to? A Gentile. This is not sounding good for Nazareth right now because he's saying, no, 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 no. I know you're poor. I know you're wretched. I know you're a prisoner. But he's starting to hint at something that they're not happy about. He's not done yet because he, he backs it up talking about Elisha and he says, but to a widow, rather, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And just in case you didn't know, as somewhat today, so was the case back then, Syrians and Israelis, Hebrews didn't get on very well. This was the ultimate offense that God would preference seemingly a Syrian over a Jew. Jesus is starting to tell them something they don't really want to hear. And so all the people were furious, it says. When they heard this, they got up, drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. But Jesus presents the poor slightly differently than what they wanted to hear initially. He has sent me to proclaim 
freedom to the prisoners and they are prisoners but he's starting to go but i'm not going to re- I'm, I'm not sent primarily to you this is anyone ever felt less where you know like god could but he doesn't seem to want to this is a real tension recovery of sight to the blind and all of a sudden he's saying uh, elijah widows no nah, god didn't send like this is confronting because this Jesus is our Jesus. This, this Jesus, if he can do it there, he can do it here. This is one of us. But now he's saying he's not going to do it here. The two examples, Elisha and Elijah, were both the Gentiles. And in the context of Luke, the, the book of Luke really focuses on the fact that Jesus was not just concerned with Israel or the Jews, but Jesus had set course, he had set a trajectory that Jesus would pay the price in, the de- in his death and resurrection for the whole world, not just Jews. He goes on and keep, keep on, can I tell you, you've got to catch the feeling because this will feel like betrayal. This will, it's understandable even. To, to set the oppressed free and they are the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and... They are people that need favour. And Jesus essentially goes, it's all cool, I'm from here. But my primary or my ultimate mission is not here. And I want you just to catch a couple simple thoughts that come from all of this. And the first is simply this. The mission of God is bigger than you. The, The Nazarenes wanted this to be about them. The, the, the Messiah had come and here was our moment to be set free from being imprisoned, to, to be freed from financial burden, that the Messiah would come. And remember, in a Jewish mindset, the Messiah was coming to get rid of the oppressors and the oppressors were the Romans. But Jesus was not so concerned with that. Jesus was more about setting people free from the burden and the brokenness of sin. He was more concerned not with just saving Israel, but the, that the true Israel in that sense would be the people of faith. You know, uh, Paul says in Romans 9 that um, not all Israel, meaning like geographic, political, ethnic Israel, is truly Israel. And the conclusion of Romans 9, if you ever read it properly in their context, which most people don't, by the way, is that Israel is just the people of faith. It's the people that believe in Jesus, like in, in terms of spiritual Israel. There was geographic, ethnic Israel at the time too, but it's not enough. And I want you to think about this in terms of yourself. Has the mission of God, has the call of God, has the gift of God become about you? God, come and fill me, bless me, make me, fill me, heal me, deal me. Or is it truly use me to reach those that are far from him? See, because Jesus in this moment is saying, really, and he's implying that his ultimate course of action will primarily affect the Gentiles. And chances are, I know we have uh, one Jewish person in the life of this congregation in New Zealand today, but most of us are Gentile. I'm Gentile, like, not Jewish. Simple as that. And I thank God that Jesus was sent that he might die for the whole world, First John 2, 2 says, because I'm part of that whole world as such. Jesus' priorities, and this is, a little confronting for us at times too is the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. And the poor here, by definition, are not necessarily just the economically poor. If you go over to Matthew 5, 6, Jesus actually defines the poor as the poor in spirit, meaning those who are far from God. The true poor, at the end of the day, 
are not really the economically poor, even though, don't mishear me for a second, God loves the poor. You want to read about God's heart for the poor and destitute? It's there. But when Jesus is talking about the poor here, his implication is firstly that the ultimate poor are actually the Gentiles. They don't know Jesus. They're far from God. His priority, and this is scary for us, is not our church. It's not, if you know Jesus, God's priority scale is not you because you're not a prisoner anymore. It's not you any longer because you are actually not blind anymore. You have the scales off your eyes taken off you. It's actually not you because you're not truly oppressed. You're actually free. And maybe in the physical, you're still going through things, but do you know what? You're actually not oppressed anymore. And I I don't know if you've ever seen the testimony of David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz had a movie written about him, uh, uh, made about him called The Summer of Sam. It's a thriller uh, he was literally in the 70s in New York, a uh, satanic priest who started murdering people uh, and sacrificing people to Sam Hadidi, a like demonic uh, being, I guess you could say. Crazy as guy. Like, that is legit crazy. Google it. Dude was a psycho. Burnt houses down, burnt people in cars, just crazy as stuff. When he was in jail, 10 years after he went to jail, he was given something like a 360-year uh, sentence. He was not getting out. He actually came to Christ. And he makes this one statement that so many people are out of jail, but they are prisoners. And he says, though I'm behind bars, I'm free. You know, something beautiful about knowing what freedom really tastes like. Jesus is saying that the poor, ultimately, the true poor are those that don't know God. And this means that when you do, and this is confronting for us, and you've got to, this might sound funny, I nearly invite a little bit of offense. God's not as concerned with you as he is the lost. That the great shepherd in Jesus' parable would leave the 99 to go for the one tells you God's priority. Don't worry, you're cool, you're corralled, you're in a thing. You know, if you're in Christ, you're saved. Like, don't worry. God's all good. This is confronting though, because this affects the way we live. This affects the way we pray. This affects the way we respond when we pray for something and God doesn't seem to deliver. The Nazarenes could have been humbled and went, God, we are so amazed that the Messiah would come from us and that he would reach the Gentiles, but they were ticked off. Understandably, and I think we've got a process at times in our life. And thirdly, I, I just want you to catch the ultimate vision of God is freedom, it's favour. Jesus did not come, John 3, 17 tells us to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come with an intent to go, you suck, I'm going to destroy you. You're a sinner, seriously, here we go, because he's got the ability to do it. I've always found it confronting that in John 8, when Jesus says, let him who casts the first stone, throw it, and and nobody else could throw it, that Jesus could have thrown it. That Jesus actually had every right as judge and righteous to collapse her head with a stone. But this is the year of the Lord's favour. Verse 18 says, but they condemn themselves. God is not concerned with condemning people, but when people decide to continue to live in sin, decide to continue to live in rebellion, then you step into the domain of condemnation. But God's vision is freedom. And you know what? There is a beautiful freedom when you no longer need to be set free necessarily from things in the natural, 
but you've tasted of the heavenly gifts, say uh, Hebrews 6 says. You know, we, we had the video earlier of uh, Stephen and J John and Mirabella, and we support workers in, in Turkey and Syria. Um, and I don't know if you ever sat with somebody and you feel like this big, because they've gone through things, they've seen things that you can hardly believe, and they still have a sweet spirit. Like, there's just a sweetness about them. They'll tell you that they lost their mum and their dad and their brothers and their sisters, and then they'll go, and I'm so thankful that God saved me. And I'm like, truthfully, they're a spiritual giant. There's a beauty in knowing that it doesn't matter what is going on in your natural, that when you taste freedom, don't ever give it up for momentary lapses of natural things. Are you still in the place where everybody praised him? Our society is. Everyone thinks Jesus is pretty awesome. They're starting to realize that he's not always as awesome as they thought he was. Or have you got to the place already, and I hope you have, to be quite honest, or because you're going to continue where Jesus offends you. Because I honestly, I can't pick up my Bible and read it consistently without feeling offended. I'm like, that, that's not fair. God, please, why? And then he's like, no, because he's Lord. We like Jesus as Savior. Like, get me out of a big hole. But not necessarily Lord bit, because that means sometimes he tells us to get in the hole. You're like, no, no, I don't like holes. We're like mountains. Give me good views, Jesus. Give me beach. Give me a nice house. And God's like, no, no, no. Desert. Wilderness. Jeshimon. The Hebrew word for wilderness in uh, Luke 4. I don't know where you are. But if you want to grow in Christ, you're going to have to go through this. Go through a place where offense is yours and you own it. And you still love him because he loves you more than you could ever believe. And his desire for you ultimately is freedom, even if it means walking through the desert. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you're good. <sighs> Lord, we understand in and of ourselves, uh, we can't do this. We simply can't do this in and of ourselves. We, we're flesh, we're blood, we're broken, and by ourselves we can't do this. But we know in the same regard as Jesus went uh, into the Spirit, in the power, uh, into the desert rather, into, in the power of the Spirit, and he went into Galilee in the power of the Spirit, that we too are called to be a people that are led by and empowered by and presenced uh, in that sense within your spirit. Lord, when uh, we take offense at what you say to us and how you lead us, Lord, I pray that we would have the humility not to try and do away with you, but to, to lean into your intent and your purpose, that your desire is for the, the woman in Sidon, Lord, that, that Gentile that was far from Israel, that, that they would know you. Your desire was not just for the widows of Israel, but in actual fact to reach out with those, to those that had no chance of knowing you otherwise. And Lord, I pray that it would be reflected in our life as well. That we would be a people that would lay aside uh, those things uh, that hold us back in that, I guess, small town thinking where we just constantly feel done bad by. But rather we would step up and realize that in the same regard as Jesus grew up in Nazareth and was sent by the Father, we too can be a sent people, that we too are a sent people. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to fix our eyes on how you sent Jesus. 
because you tell us clearly in terms of uh, initially the apostles and the disciples and by, by virtue and extension of that us, Lord, that as the Father has sent you, so you sent us. We love you so much and we pray that we would um, just keep our eyes centered on that reality, that you love us, that you've called us and you've set us apart. And um, Lord, we're not called just to be anointed for ourselves, but we are anointed to proclaim, to declare and demonstrate the power of the gospel that they, that do, to people that do not know you in any regard. In your precious name, amen. 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 If you're uh, new with us, can I encourage you? Uh, there are some...